This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, this is Viral Jesus, a show about communication and the power of social connections, where we talk to some of the most influential Christian content creators to find out how they've made their faith go viral. Everyone I talk to on this show is someone I follow or was told to follow online. Most of the conversations you'll hear are with people I have never met in person, yet they've impacted how I think. What does it look like for Christians to enter the chat thoughtfully? Let's grow together on Viral Jesus. I'm your host, Heather Thompson Day. Hello, friend. I have some exciting news. Y'all have made Viral Jesus chart several weeks in a row as one of the top 200 Christian podcasts in the country. Friend, as of January 2023, there are over 5 million podcasts. So I cannot tell you how grateful I am that you have put us on the map. We are charting. This is incredible. I got off a flight a couple of weeks ago and I, I honestly cried in my car because I realized it's not a fluke. It's been four weeks in a row. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mere exposure is a psychological phenomenon by which people tend to develop a preference for things or people or podcasts that are more familiar to them than others. So repeated exposure increases familiarity. This is why in election season, you will see signs and it will just say someone's name. There's no campaign promise. <laughs> you don't have an idea of what their plan is. But when you get in the voting booth, if you've seen their name over and over and over, mere exposure, you may end up giving them your vote. It's why people pay money for ads or pay to have their brand on a billboard. Mere exposure says the more you see something, the more familiar it comes to you the more likely you are to just say, you know, I like this. So keep sharing our tiny little program here on your socials. You don't even have to say anything. Like you don't even have to make this really persuasive tagline or caption to go with it. People just seeing the name Viral Jesus over and over on their feeds will make them more likely to listen themselves. Also, I want you to know this, okay, for your ministry, for you, for your blog, for your nonprofit, for your newsletter, for your business, mere exposure. Keep telling people about it. Don't be scared. You kind of have to keep throwing it on your own timeline. I am telling you, if Viral Jesus could go from being this little podcast with like, we were hoping to get a thousand downloads two years ago to now being into the top 200 of Christian podcasts in the country. So can you. So we stay faithful, right? We stay faithful. We keep creating. We keep serving. Even if you swear no one is paying attention, God sees you. God sees you. 
And truly, isn't that always enough? We are going to continue our series, What You May Be Getting Wrong About God. I'm going to be sad when I can't say that anymore. But first, are you ready for hashtag blessed, where we look at a current topic facing all of us with social media and decide whether it's a hashtag bless or hashtag mess. Today, I am joined again by Brady Shearer. Brady Shearer is the director of Pro Church Tools and church software platform Nucleus. His work focuses on helping churches navigate the biggest communication shift in 500 years. So I wanted to have Brady Shearer back on Hashtag Blessed today to look at the different setups for algorithms because there's the social graph algorithm and the discovery algorithm. I feel like TikTok has really changed a lot of what I would consider social media because it became so much more entertainment focused rather than social focused. So I like the social graph algorithm. Brady, you think that may be a little bit of a hashtag mess? You prefer the bless of a discovery algorithm? Tell us why and tell us what the difference is for those of us who do not know. Sure. So the social graph algorithm, you may not be familiar with that term, but you are certainly familiar with what it uh, has created on social because yeah. for social's entire history, roughly 15 years or so, uh, social graph algorithms have dictated what you see on your social feeds. And all social graph algorithm means is that it's your friends and family and your personal connections that largely dictate what's showing up in your feed. And social platforms have tried to compete with Facebook and they have largely been dismissed because Facebook's social graph algorithm has had us for longer than anyone right. else. So TikTok comes around and they say, okay, we're not going to try to compete with Facebook on their terms. We're going to create a brand new game. And that brand new game and set of rules is something we're calling a discovery algorithm. And a discovery algorithm, what you see on your feed, doesn't really come down to the people that you're following or connected to, those personal connections. It's simply your interests and your viewing habits and your viewing history. And TikTok has been so successful that it didn't just create a new uh, paradigm for itself, but now all of the other social platforms have begun embracing these discovery algorithms. Uh, Zuckerberg was on an earnings call last year and talked at length about how they're investing significantly into their discovery engine and into Reels uh, because they feel the pressure from TikTok and, uh, hey, we need to embrace this. So Instagram, YouTube with Shorts, Facebook have all embraced this new discovery algorithm. And, you know, at least for me, I, I, I try to be agnostic about what the social platforms are, are doing in terms of like their business decisions for the most part. Uh, as a social media practitioner myself, like, hey, what are they incentivizing me to do? I like to think of it as like a wave in the ocean. I'm trying to ride that wave. I can right. fight the wave, sure, but the wave <laughs> is just going to knock me over. I am not strong enough to overcome the wave. So if discovery algorithms are what's happening now, there are certainly some pros and cons to them. The pros are that it's a lot easier to reach a wider right. audience than it ever was with social graph algorithms. You know, people, rightfully so, said for years, man, it's so hard to be on Facebook and Instagram and even YouTube. Like, how am I supposed to reach new people? Like, these platforms have become saturated. They've been around for too long. How do I reach people? Well, Discovery algorithms allow you to reach people. I'm on this podcast because I posted an Instagram reel. I right. came across it. I was like, hey, I want to talk to this guy a bit more. That probably never would have happened in the social graph algorithms unless I had done some paid advertising because that was kind of the best way to grow beyond your audience that you already had. So there are pros and cons to each. 
nobody likes change. Something new comes around. Ah, I wish, <laughs> what happened to the chronological feed? And, you know, social media is such a young industry. Everything's changing so rapidly. It can be difficult to, uh, to keep up with it all. Uh, but such is life with a new industry. I have to ask you, though, what are your thoughts on this? Because my fear is that then we lose the social element of social media that first made it so unique and different. Because if everything's entertainment focused, which is how I think I experienced TikTok, there's not as much community that gets built around it. What do you think about that? I think that's a really valid criticism. The head of TikTok, one of the higher ups at TikTok has even come out and said, hey, we're not trying to compete with Facebook. Facebook is a social platform. Right. We are an entertainment But Facebook platform. is trying to compete with them. Exactly. And that's what happens in a, you know, a capitalistic society. It's all about like, hey, Facebook <laughs> had one down quarter and all of the investors were like, oh my goodness, the stock price, like they got to pivot massively. And, and that is one of the downsides. It's like, you know, if this is the hot new thing, we have to chase it. Social graph algorithm, discovery algorithm, which one do you think is the hashtag bless or hashtag mess? We'll let you decide. If you want to respond to our hashtag blessed segment today, if you have your thoughts on this topic, we would love to hear from you. Just type into your search bar, whether on Instagram or Twitter, type in at viral Jesus pod, and then just put a hashtag blast on the end of whatever your comment is, and we will see it. We would love to enter the chat with you. Well, I hope you have your pen or your notes app open, or you just got your thinking cap on because class is in session. We are in episode two of our pod class journey titled things you may be getting wrong about God. And I am joined today by one of, and I really mean this, one of my favorite theologians, Joel Mutamale. Joel serves as the director of theology and research for Proverbs 31 Ministries and Lisa Turkers, and is a part of the preaching team at Transformation Church with Pastor Derwin Gray. And in this conversation, Joel shares what he thinks we may be getting wrong about God's vision for the church. So every time we start this episode, I like to do a little digging on someone's social media account. And I had a hard time deciding what I was going to pick for you. But here's what we went through. Here's what we're going to go through. Pentecost is not simply the reversal of Babel. Pentecost is the redemptive reversal and reinstitution of Babel. Walk us through that. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've experienced, Heather, often is just this question of like, what is the church supposed to look like? How do we navigate unity? What does unity in the church even like practically look like? And what is the cost associated with trying to pursue unity? Because it always feels like somebody's got to lose in the process. Like there's got to be this level of compromise that takes place. And this actually stems from my uh, dissertation, where as I was looking at Ephesians 2, 18 through 22, and then actually chapter two. Which okay, wait, we what all... was your dissertation topic? Yeah, it was actually called, um, well, it has to do with Paul's oikos language, his household terminology oh. in Ephesians. And so the question is like, how does Paul understand the household? And what is the household mm. of God when when he says oikos hateo? Like, what does that even mean? And so I looked back, I was like, well, when does the family first come together? And the family first comes together at Pentecost. I mean, that's where the family of God is presented with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And then I was like, wait a minute, you know, 
I feel like this is anticipated earlier. Like, where does this take place? And, and where is this anticipation? You go to Genesis chapter 12 and you've got the Abrahamic covenant, you know? And then I'm like, wait a minute, what comes before Genesis 12? And you're like, you've got this odd story of Babel here, uh-huh. right? Like this tower and these people. And then I was like, well, where did Babel come from? And it's Genesis 10, the table of nations. And so here, here's what is taking place, I think. In Genesis 10, if you read through it, you'll notice that there are lands, there are people, there are nations. And here's what's so interesting. There are languages, mm-hmm. right? So each people group has a distinct clan. And these distinct clans have their own languages that represent their culture, their ethnicity, their backgrounds. And, and this is all true. It's all distinct. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 11, you get in and it says, well, all the people had one language. And it's like, so Old Testament scholars are debating, well, what is going on? How do we read these two chapters? How do they come together? And my argument is this phenomena is called this thing called lingua franca. And essentially, so I'm Indian. I don't know if anybody, if you saw me, you'd be like, oh, Joel's Indian. Um, I grew up, I was born. (laughs) You can see him on our YouTube. You can watch him talk about this. Yeah. And so it's like, well, Joel grew up in, I was born in America, but I went and lived in India for two and a half years with my grandparents who are missionaries in India. And Mm. This concept, the the lingua franca, it's so present in India because you've got Hindi, which is the national kind of um, land language for all people in India. You can kind of use that for everybody to know each other. But every city state that you go to, even the village and the towns, they have their own distinct languages. Mm, Interesting, interesting. So you're retaining distinction. You're retaining cultural background without losing the sense of camaraderie and unity that's taking place. Joel, can I say, this is why... This is one of the many reasons we have to read theology from a diversity of authors' perspective, because white European authors may not catch something like that in the same way that Joel Mudamale would. Right. So it's so important because there's different things just based on the positionality of where we fit into a culture that we say, wait, this sounds familiar to me based on my experience. So I love that you mentioned that. Yeah. And so in Genesis 11, I think it's important also to notice that, hey, there's some positive things that are taking place with these people. They have a sense of unity. They have a sense of commonality. Um, The three things that I saw was that there was um, God's gift that was given to them. God gave them a commission and God gave them an aim. The problem was that the way that they used this common language was not aimed towards the things that God desired for them, but it was bent inward. You know, you've got Calvin and Luther and before them, Augustine, who uh, referred to the heart as being curved inward, bent inward. And we find this description right here in Genesis 11. And they're building a tower. This is really important. This tower is actually a ziggurat tower, Mm. which is technically a temple. And at the very top of the temple, they would have built a house to force God to come down and God would reside in the house. Why have I never heard this before? (laughs) I've never heard this before. And I've read people writing on this. I mean, we've got archaeological evidence of this. We've got even in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is where we find Abraham's kind of background. It's actually all connected to this. This was actually a tower that was uh, a worship for the sun god and uh, actually, sorry, the moon god. And so all this is taking place. Now, interesting, go back to the commission. God tells the people to what? Go out and into the world and to multiply the image of God to the ends of the earth. And here you do find rebellion, utter rebellion. Instead of going into the world and multiplying the image of God, they decide to go up and try to force God to come down. 
right? And so at this point, there's a consequence for sin. There always is, you know? And the consequence mm-hmm. here is that they, again, interesting, they lose the unifying language that brought them all together and they disperse into all of the nations and, and they spread out. So God still has his ambition, his aim, and the giftings that he's given the people are present, but he's got to put them in the right place in order for it to take place. Fast forward all of these generations and, and years and you get to Acts chapter 2. The list of nations, this is insane, the list of nations in Acts chapter 2, if you laid them out geopolitically on top of the nations that are listed in Genesis 10 are the exact same nations. It covers the exact same geopolitical land. And so then we have the Holy Spirit who comes back down. Now notice this, God comes down of his own will, of his own accord. And when God comes down, I think this is so intriguing. If I were the Holy Spirit, we should all be glad that I'm not the Holy Spirit. But if I were, I'm about efficiency and being effective, right? The language of the time is Greek, right? Maybe Aramaic. And I would have everybody just, you know, have interpretation done in Greek or Aramaic. Mm -hmm. It's just the most effective and efficient ways. But if you look at Acts chapter 2 and you look at the text particularly, what it says is, and and this is one of the most... uh, pretty uh, amazing things that it says that they marveled these people that gathered Pentecost and hear Peter's speech they marvel because they hear the gospel in their own languages the holy spirit translates the message of the gospel into the, and why and we have to ask this question why why is this so important and here's my my posture my kind yeah. of thought is that god cares intimately of our background our ethnicity our culture and it was so adamantly, like essentially important for God that the first time they heard the glorious message of the gospel was in that intimacy of a familial tongue. Mm. Uh, there, are, there are jokes that my family tells in Telugu, which is our dialect. And y'all, my wife is white. I'm Indian. The second I try to translate mm. a joke from Telugu into English, it is no longer funny. <laughs> it just, it, it loses all like, I'm like, oh my God, right? Um, but interestingly, there's something beautiful about the structure, the syllables, the poetic uh, framing of a message in its original tongue that I think is intimate, that I think is beautiful. This is my thought. Like I think actually what's happening here, and many New Testament scholars will say, yeah, this uh, Acts 2 is a redemptive reversal of Babylon. And, and I go, no, I, I see the redemptive reversal, but I actually see it as a reinstitution mm. of what God wanted from the very originally. beginning. What does this mean? Why is this originally? Yeah. Why is this so important? Unity and diversity is not an afterthought. Mm. It doesn't just show up randomly in Acts chapter 2. It was understood, it was lived, it was experienced, and yet it had to be rightly aimed and rightly oriented, and that's what the Holy Spirit does for the people. And so that's why I think it's important for us to see it, and I think that has pretty massive consequences. When we think of now the formation of the church, how should the church relate to each other? One of the things I always say is, you know, our ethnicity is not obliterated when we walk into the church walls. It it actually is celebrated because that's the picture of the very first instance of the formation of this new family of God. If people thought that we were just going to slowly banter our way into this conference. No, we are on the highway 80 miles per hour. I am inviting you to jump in. We are in the middle, actually, Joel, of a pod class of really we're focusing on theology, but from the angle of what we may be getting wrong about God. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, what do you think we may be getting wrong about God's vision 
for the church. And honestly, in some of what you've already set up, I hear some hints of that, but take us a little further. What do you think today most of us might be getting wrong about how God sees the vision for the church originally? Yeah. You know, for me, Heather, one of the important things is framing, you know, like how we frame something. It helps orient us in in a story. For instance, I'm from Chicago, like I was born and raised in Chicago. And so the very first things you're going to know about me are that Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. Chicago deep dish is way better than New York (laughs) style thin crust pizza. And if anybody tries to argue with me that LeBron is the greatest, all I have to say is game seven. Like (laughs) LeBron lived in game seven. Jordan never even saw it. Mm -hmm. Right. But that framing is really important. One of the things that I'm worried about is how have we understood the framing of the people of God, particularly the ecclesia, the church, in its original context, in the language that the Apostle Paul, the uh, Apostle Peter, and the New Testament in general presented. And so here are a couple of verses that I think are really important. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 2.11, these are things that I'm like just processing through personally. Peter says this, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Mm. These are political terms, right? Mm. In the original Greek language, like strangers and exiles, the, the minute that you hear it in the Greek language, like, you're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. When did we get political <laughs> over here? It These are words to describe people that are not natives of a land that they're in. Mm. They're, they're actually guests. They're actually resident aliens. They're, they're actually in a space and they're occupying a space and they're trying to be faithful in the space that they're in. And yet their primary allegiance, their primary identity is not the space that they're in. Mm. There's a, another passage that I think makes it even greater. I mean, you're talking about Hebrews chapter 11, which is this passage about like the heroes of faith. Um, and, and here's what it says. He talks about all these people. All these people uh, died in faith, though they had not received the things that were promised. But then amazing. But they saw them from a distance and greeted them and confessed that they were, these people were foreigners and temporary residents mm. on the earth. Right. And so I just wonder what would take place if we understood our lived experience, our lives within the family of God, within the church as resident aliens of a land that is not our own, mm. that, that we have to be good stewards of people who are primary, primarily have an allegiance to King Jesus mm. over the kingdoms of the world. Right. And this takes me to Second Corinthians chapter five, the language that Paul uses of us is ambassadors of Christ, that Christ is making his appeal in and through us. Now, again, I go to the ancient world. Ambassadors are kind of like they're walking with the swagger when they're walking into other places. Right. You know, they've got the emblem of the king. They've got the notoriety of the king. They've got the protection of the king and where they walk, the presence of the king goes with them. You know, mm. and uh, there's this scene. I don't know if uh, maybe I shouldn't say this on the podcast. I'm just going to say it. There's a scene in 300 where, you know, this uh, foreign guy comes in, you know, and all of a sudden, uh, like the dude kicks him in the chest, this ambassador kicks him in the chest. And then it's that big scene yes. like we are Sparta, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Like it's, it's this epic, epic moment. Well, everybody is in shock. Why are they in shock? You would never in your right mind lay a hand against an ambassador of a foreign king. Right. right. Because an ambassador walks with the power of the authority. I think it's really interesting how the gospel subverts this idea. Actually, you're making quite the political statement when you do. <laughs> right. 
Like, yeah, I've never thought of any of this in this vein. So keep going. I am invested. Well, I think, and this is actually, this comes from Dr. Patrick Schreiner, my um, doctoral advisor, who has a, a great book on uh, the political gospel that's coming out. I endorsed it. Um, and he makes this argument that that I see everywhere in the text that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're taking actions that are, in a sense, subversive. And, and let me define yeah, yeah. what that means. The world looks at the way that the believer lives, acts, thinks, and walks, and they go, that's whack. Like that is so crazy that there, there's no reason for these people and goes back to that original conversation that people that have deep ethnic strife against each other, you know, that they are actually at a table sharing food right. with each other. That's subversive, right? Like like it it uproots the system. It uproots the ideology and the thought. And so for us, you look at Second Corinthians chapter five and you take a look at how does God have this vision for the local church? And, and the language, I think, is a language of an outpost. Uh, we're an outpost. The, the church, every place the local church gathers and where you and I gather together, we're an outpost in a land that is not our own. And so we're this beacon that is saying, hey, by the way, there is a coming king. And in fact, where we are, because we're ambassadors, the kingdom is present. It's it's advancing. It's breaking through. Mm. I'm going to go to India in a couple of weeks. And when I go to India, I will be in Indian land, right? It's the land of India. Now, interestingly, there's an embassy. And this embassy is called the United States Embassy. Mm-hmm. And the second I walk onto the embassy, I'm now on American land. Mm. Like, I, th- There's this language that's present. And that, to me, seems to be the framing of how God views the church, of how God views the people that gather inside of the church. And I think this, if we understood this and if we reclaim this and we just return to this in a theology of remembrance, I mean, it would have significant impact in the way that we relate to each other, the way that we relate to non-believers, and the way that we relate to our society and to the people that are around us. This episode is brought to you in part by World Relief, an organization that partners with the local church to serve the most vulnerable. Around the world, increased conflict, the lingering effects of COVID-19, and disasters caused by our changing climate have left millions of people in desperate situations. Many are fleeing their homes and are facing starvation, persecution, and more. These overwhelming challenges cause many of us to wonder, can I make a difference? The answer is simple. Yes, you can. When you join The Path, World Relief's monthly giving community, you partner with World Relief in bringing hope and transformation to the millions experiencing vulnerability around the world. And when you partner with your monthly gift by September 30th, your first year of monthly gifts will be matched dollar for dollar up to $25,000. Double the impact of your giving and visit worldrelief.org slash viraljesus today. how do we do it? Right. Cause often I think what's happening, at least my experience in local church ministry is people don't like each other anymore. Right. I'm Mm -hmm. seeing things, especially because of social media. Now I know things about you that I did not know when we're just coming in to sit down and worship. 
right? And we're doing small mm-hmm. talk. Now I know your political affiliations or whatever other things it is that I disagree with. You're posting them online and now I know. And what if those things feel like infringements upon me? How do we kind of reclaim this idea of, of being a family and ushering in the spirit of God and the kingdom of God and the unity of the spirit at a time when so many of us, I think, unfortunately don't know how to like each other anymore once I learn various things about you. Yeah, I think that's so good. So um, my friend, Jim Cress, Jim and I and my boss, Lisa Turkhurst, we do this podcast called Therapy and Theology. And, and Jim said this once that I think is so brilliant. He said that expectations are resentments waiting to take place. Expectations mm. are resentments waiting to take place. And, and here's what I think has happened is we have so many expectations about what our relationships with fellow believers should look like. Yeah. And again, I go back to the framing. Well, what is it? Well, we think of uniformity. My expectation is that you like the same teams that I like, that you eat the same food that I like, like that you, right? And so I just go back to the ancient world. I'm just wondering how is this all taking place? And, and there's a lot of sacrifice, but there's a lot of give and take and awareness. Like for instance, and this happens to my wife and I all the time in the sense of we're in different places in our life now, 13 years married, and we've got a lot of friends that are in different stages of their lives. Some of them are single. Some of them are just now getting married. Some of them are just having kids. And we're like four kids in, you know, and we think like, hey, let's go out to dinner. And Brenna are like, yeah, let's go to this really nice place, you know, and uh, right. my friends that have little kids, they're like, oh, no, dude, we, that's just no way. That's not that's not possible. You see, if my expectation is that they're in the exact same situation as me, that instantly destroys that relationship hmm. because there's no space for me and them to come together. Right. And, and so there's got to be this sense of when we come together as a family, we understand primarily, what are the non-negotiables? The the phrase is theological triage. Like, what are these non-negotiables that we're willing to die on a hill about? And what are these secondary and tertiary things that we can have opinions about, that we can discuss and debate? I mean, you want to see, like, me go and edit? Listen to me and my buddy talk about LeBron versus MJ. I mean, people (laughs) would think that we actually hate each other. And then we leave and, like, we're like, okay, let's go grab dinner. You know, mm-hmm. let's let's mm-hmm. do this. But again, it's about framing. It's about my expectation. If my criteria for friendship is you have to love MJ right. over LeBron, ain't going to work, you know? And so you brought up some lists of things, political, socioeconomic. I mean, mm-hmm. you, we can go mm-hmm. through the, the whole nine yards. And so the question is, are those deal breakers in my relationship? And I think we care more about other people hearing us than we care about listening to the heartbeat of the other person. Because unless we can hear them and where they're coming from, it's gonna be really Mm -hmm. difficult for us to be able to then share where we come from in a perspective where it's actually informed by the other discussion, you know? I think what's interesting even is the word family, because in family dynamics, some of those secondary issues of course, are present, and yet it doesn't seem like it has to break the relationship. Right. I mean, maybe recently more people are saying, I'm cutting off my own parents. But in general, I think for most of us, we have an uncle or a sister or a brother who we deeply disagree with, but it doesn't change the fact that you are my brother or my sister. Yeah. Whereas friendship feels so much more optional, at least in our Western culture, mm-hmm. that it's like, if you're not, if you don't agree with these things now, you are no longer my friend. So family is a better framing 
for how we should be having these conversations as a church. But here's the other thing, and you brought it up. You said, well, it's from what we see on Twitter. It's what we see on Instagram. It's what's posted. And here, again, just a common, just fundamental belief that I now have. People are way more aggressive with what they love and with what they hate behind the protection of a social media post than who they actually are presently incarnated in their life. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's actually creating dual personality disorder in a sense. It's like I I can present myself socially as this aggressive, hard, staunch, whatever. And then you come and meet me and you're like, oh, that's not even like who you are as a person. So, again, it's being framed like now I'm thinking in my mind, well, I can never have this conversation with Heather because she just said something and I totally disagree. But it seems like this is a deal breaker for her. The problem is I made a massive assumption. My expectation Mm. is that it's going to be a deal breaker. And then we have the way that we present ourselves in social media that's actually working against like person-to-person relationships there and we've got to figure out how to overcome that i mean this is a a ethical question for me should that even be present is that even healthy Mm -hmm. for my soul for me to have a representation of who i am on social media that is actually probably not true of who i am in real life right these are questions that all of us have to deal with something i grew up with in my denomination that I was raised in was this constant don't love the world or be set apart from the world. First John 2.15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in them. But as I have grown and as an adult and I read these verses and I look up different translations, it is probably more accurate to say, don't love the way of the world. People didn't say it to me like that. Right. Right. So what do you think we may be getting wrong? about how God sees our role in the world right now. This role of, well, this is secular and this is my faith. And these two things are incredibly different. I'm not supposed to love the world at all. So I can't even really love my job. Right. Because that's just a temporary thing in this world. Right. So this, like the language that that I've often heard or that I use is like the sacred and secular divide, which if you want me yeah. to go, go absolutely crazy, talk to me about the sacred and secular divide. One... In what world do we live in that there actually can be such a thing as a sacred and secular divide? But a lot of people are living this way, Joel. I think a lot of Christians are living in this divided place. I hear it from my students all the time. What does my job have to do with my faith? They see them as two separate things. Yeah. So we see it as two separate things and it's driving us crazy because we can't actually keep them as two separate things Mm. and they keep running into each other. And so now you have to ask this, like for me, it's a theological question. Are we intended to have a separate sacred life and then walk into our quote unquote secular world, right? This is like fundamental to me in terms of the doctrine of creation. Everything that is secular out there, this might be going too deep, too far, wherever else. But I kind of, again, I just have this belief that everything that is secular out there has hints of the gospel and the hands of a divine creator Mm. that has marked them and framed them in that way. The problem with the fall is that the fall breaks the man and breaks creation. And so what we've Mm. called secular and we've demonized right? And we've, we've institutionalized this, this thing that is evil that we got to like leave. Otherwise it's going to contaminate yes. us. Right? Yes. I just don't see it in the scriptures. What I see is God, and we can go back to the old Testament and we can look at the people of Israel. Um, we can see this call for the Israelites to be a holy and set apart people, right? So you do have that set apartness, but I have yes. to go the uh-huh. next step. Why are they set apart? Well, they're set apart because they're smack in the middle of the nations of the world. 
the Philistines and the Hittites and, and all. And so the people, you look at Exodus and you look at the, the requirements for that God gives the Israelites to be kind and gracious and to invite the foreigner, the, the sojourner into the family of God. Like all that stuff is take, yes. taking place. And so you actually have this sacred aspect of who we are with the intent that that sacredness steps into every aspect of what is quote unquote secular with this aim, that the holy, sacred, beautiful, divine aspects of who God has created us to be and to impact the world would be marked and overflowed and step into those spaces. I actually think the opposite has happened. So I think the reason why we've got this sacred Mm. secular divide is because we have allowed, we have fear that if we step into these secular spaces, that the secular spaces are going to then infiltrate us and take us over, which is a legitimate fear. This is John Owen says, you know, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I'm paraphrasing that. Like that idea is true, but the problem is we can't live in fear. We have to live out a biblical vision of what this looks like. And again, for me, it's the sense that there are redemptive, beautiful aspects of our culture and our society. And we've got to call those things out and engage with them to shine a light on the things that are dark, to shine a light on the things that are fallen and broken and not match up to God's ideal. But again, the point is, is to have the sacred break through into all aspects of creation. The new heavens, the new earth are just that. (laughs) It is a reimagining of Eden. Eden, like, disappears in Genesis chapter two as a garden. It comes back in Revelation as a city, right? Mm. And so we've got this sense of development. I've never mm. heard anyone say that before either. Yeah, it's a garden that city. That is so good. Talk to me about those differences, actually. Walk me through that. Yeah, for me, it's Eden is a place that ought to be cultivated, right? God gives Adam and Eve together. They're both prophet, <laughs> so priest, good. and king. And he gives them a divine vision. In fact, the the Hebrew words that are used to describe Adam and Eve, demut and shalem, likeness and image, are language that's used in the ancient world to describe the prodigy of kings. So when when we're talking about Adam and Eve, we're talking about the children of the king. Well, kings in the ancient world, they would have gardens. Well, what do you do in gardens? You hang out with your family. And so you've got Eden. Now, God gives his royal children, both of them together, a mandate to go out and to multiply and to spread the goodness of Eden into the ends of the earth. The divine command is broken with Adam and Eve together, their rebellion. Interestingly, Eden is the first picture of the temple. Right, I'm following G.K. Beale on this. Eden is is the temple, God's presence, and the priest, the high priest, Adam and Eve together. They're in God the temple. With us. This makes so much sense. Yes, <laughs> they're yes, walking yes. and talking with God in Eden. In the temple. In the temple. Mm -hmm. And so, and you've got the high priest, they're supposed to work the temple. They're supposed to guard and protect it. Uh, In fact, the same word that's used for Adam and Eve to protect or to care for the garden is the exact same Hebrew words that's used of the Levitical high priest to protect the temple and of the watchmen uh, of the city gates to protect the city of, of Israel. So linguistically, it's working all the way through. Eden leaves, and I think it's so interesting because Eden leaves as a garden, and yet God's command for the cultivation of that garden, for the progression development of that garden, is still in place. And so the question is, what's happening now? And what happens when Jesus comes? And and how does he continue to renew and restore all things? I think the reason why we have in Revelation the return of Eden and the return of this city is because there's this expectation. And now go a little bit deeper, but I have the strong belief that The things that we do here on earth are impacting things right now cosmically in heaven. 
It is on earth mm. as it is in heaven. This is what Jesus is prayed. In heaven. Right? Actually, this is the same thing in Matthew 18 when it talks about church discipline. People freak out over the binding language, you know? This is all judicial language that's being used that, you know, the Pharisees and Sadducees, all of them would understand that it's a courtroom. And the idea is when you're doing church discipline, you take this person who's an unrepentant sin and you place them out of the family of God. It's a declaration of what's happening earthly, physically, is this heavenly reality as well. The two things are supposed to be intertwined, not separated. And we live in a separated world where we don't realize or we mm. don't live with the reality of a cosmic a supernatural reality that is is like invading the earthly. Those two things are taking place mm. simultaneously. And so that's why I think Eden is this city garden because actually the things that we do now, the, the way that we cultivate a lifestyle of godliness, the way that we are making positive impacts in our world, this is why justice, mercy, all of these things that Amos talks about, Micah 6, 8, all that is so vitally important is because it is the development, it is the ongoing construction of this city that is going to come back, which will be where we live back in a temple city as high priests hanging, talking, walking with Revelation God. 3. With God with us. That's it. <laughs> I'm going to take a second and just let people sit in what we just talked about. Oh, my word. Joel, I'm just telling you. And I read more theology than the average person. And things you have said I've never heard in my entire life. We have to have <laughs> you back on when your book comes out. I honestly can not wait. Joel Mutamale is the director of theology and research for Proverbs 31 Ministries. Joel, where can people find you? You do this thing on Instagram, by the way. I want everyone to know about you yeah. do um, Theology Tuesdays. Yeah. Where can people find you on Instagram or Twitter? Yeah, it's easy and difficult at the same time. It's just my last name. So it's at Mudamali, M-U-D-D-A-M-A-L-L-E. And on Tuesdays, we've done this fun thing um, where we just call it Theology Talk Tuesday. And it's kind of a ask me anything. You can pop in your questions and it's super fun. We're, we get all kinds of fun, in-depth questions about theology, culture, ethics, politics, all that kind of stuff. And we try to tackle it together on Tuesdays. And I just want to say people might think because it's social media, it somehow loses its depth because you're responding, but it really, you have a gift of taking questions seriously and taking people deep into answers for it and really spending the time. It's not just short one-off answers. You really give us research for where you're coming from on the answers people ask you. I absolutely love it. I want everyone to check it out. Joel, our tagline this season for Viral Jesus is to encourage people to enter the chat at a time where we kind of talked about this a bit, but social media has so many negatives that are real and surround it. But at Viral Jesus, we want to encourage people to take ownership of their communication, of their faith, both online and off. So my question that I ask everybody at the end of the episode is, how do you choose to be a redemptive voice in the online space? Yeah, the way that I choose to do it is that I remember the cross. I remember Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I remember that if not for the cross, redemption would not have been for me. Like I wouldn't experience it. So why wouldn't I want to be a redemptive voice, a humble voice for theology in the world? So what can we learn from our conversation with Joel Mutamale? Number one, God retains cultural distinction. 
without losing camaraderie and unity. Your race and culture and nationality are distinct and we don't lose those things as Christians. We learn how to value others and see their distinctness while also finding unity in our pursuit of Christ. Number two, framing is important. It helps orient us to the very stories we are telling. How have we understood the framing of the people of God in its original context? Joel says, 1 Peter 2.11 says, for example, dear friends as strangers and exiles. And he says, that's a political term. It's words to describe people who have not been native to the land they are now in. And as Christians, we are to be faithful in the space we are in, but we are ambassadors of another kingdom. We're ambassadors of God. How does that frame change our lived experience? We are resident aliens of a land that is not our kingdom. Number three, do we care more about people hearing us than we do the heartbeat of the person we are communicating with? What does it mean to be right without being righteous? Viral Jesus was brought to you by Christianity Today. I've been your host and creator, Heather Thompson Day, producer and audio engineer, Lauren Joseph, and executive producer, Ed Gilbreth. Please review and recommend us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Next week is episode three of three of our series, What You May Be Getting Wrong About God. We probably should have done a 10-part series. Like, I'm seeing my error now because I am loving this. Remember, Remember, the best way you can tell us you loved this episode is to share it with a friend or post it on your own online community, Mere Exposure. Let's make Jesus go viral. I'll see you next week for another conversation where a viral Jesus guest talks and you and I listen so we can learn. I love growing with you on Viral Jesus. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.